Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. It says, And when he, this is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question he asked them. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, here we see in the section that we're starting with tonight, a confirmation of all that we studied last week. The Jews have been given enough light to believe. They had been given the law. The prophets had all testified about the seriousness of sin and the promise of a righteous branch and the son of David who was going to come to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah 9-6 had even told them that the one who would come uh, would also be God himself. And then John the Baptist came on the scene announcing his coming. Now, let me want to make sure you're with us here. The, God had been giving them plenty of light. He's been showing them through the law, through the prophets, through the Psalms, and now with John the Baptist himself coming and announcing the Messiah is here. Go with me to John chapter 1. I'll show you two times right in a row where the scripture shows us that John announced that the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one that had been prophesied about and pointed to all throughout time, was now on the scene. John chapter 1, we'll start in verse 29. In John 20, chapter 1 verse 21, it says the, 29 says, The next day... He, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So John had come announcing it, and even here in this passage, we see two days in a row, he states it. From the story here, we'll, if you keep reading, you'll see a couple of John's disciples no longer followed him and became disciples of Jesus. But the Jews, even though the law had been pointing to the coming one who was going to take away their sin, even though the prophets talked about it, even though the Psalms prophesied about him, we've been looking at a lot of the Psalms that Jesus has said referred to him as in our study even though all this was happening, and even though John the Baptist himself showed up and said, this is the one, even though, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, he rode into Jerusalem on the exact day that the prophecy in Daniel said he would, that the Messiah would come, even with all that, the Jews still wouldn't believe. So because they wouldn't believe, Jesus blinded their eyes so that they couldn't believe. Let me take you to John chapter 12. Go to John chapter 12, and let me show you some, a passage here that has made some people bothered a little bit, but when you let it speak for itself and show you what it's saying, you'll say, oh, I get it now. In John chapter 12, look at verses 35 through 43. In John chapter 12, look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light... 
Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Look again at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Was that God's blinding them or because of their choice? That was their choice. And because of that, there came a point where God said, spiritual truth is revealed by me. I give you enough to respond. And if you don't respond, I make it so that you can't respond. And he blinded them. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 11, that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. I'm going to ask you a question. Those of you that are listening online, those of you that are here, how much has God revealed to you? Have you responded? Just because you're here on a Tuesday night doesn't mean that you're a believer. There might be someone here who's still seeking and still searching to see if these things be true. I don't know everybody in the room. I know most of you all here. But let me just say this to you. If God's opened your eyes and the Spirit has revealed to you the truth of who Jesus is, you better respond. You better respond. You have a choice. But there comes a point where he says, I've given you enough. You don't want to get to that point. If you ever want to do an interesting study, you go back and look at the story of Pharaoh. When God told Moses, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart and I'm going to display my power and my glory through him in this situation. But just because God said, I'm going to harden his heart, doesn't mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart at the beginning. If you go back and you look at that whole story of all the plagues and what was going on with God and Moses, the Bible clearly says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart over and over and over. You, you do a little study on it and you double check me and you write it down. Did, did, did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? The scripture clearly shows Pharaoh hardened his own. But there comes a point in the story where all of a sudden it no longer says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It says from that point on, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Folks, there's nothing worse than having a hard heart. Now I'm going to talk to Christians. If you're a true believer and you're here today, you can't lose your salvation. If the Spirit of God has sealed you, you're sealed for eternity. But do you know that it's possible for a believer to get a hard heart? A believer can get a hard heart where you're no longer sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction, even though it lives within you. You can develop a hard heart. And the Bible actually teaches for there are some Christians who are taken to heaven early. The Bible calls it in 1 John chapter 5, a sin unto death. Because they've become callous to the Spirit working in their heart. And I say to you Christians, don't ever get that hard heart. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Years ago when our kids were little, there was one time, one night, AJ, our youngest, he's now 21. I think he was probably six, seven, eight at the most, not, maybe not even that old. And it was time for bed and he had a bedroom routine and him being a boy, we actually, Becky put it on a piece of paper by his bathroom mirror, but all the things he had to remember to do. Did you brush your teeth? Did you do this? Did you do that? It was time for him to go to bed. And uh, we were in the living room and he was with us and we said, okay, but it's time to go to bed. Go do your bathroom routine. Come back and give us a kiss. Good night. But an hour goes by and we realized AJ hasn't come back and kissed us. So I get up and I go in and he's fully dressed, sitting on his bed, being a horrible kid, reading a book. And I said to him, let me ask you a question. You did hear us say that it was time to do your bathroom routine, didn't you? He said, yeah. I said, so what happened? He goes, well, Dad, I came in with the intent to do it, but then I saw this book and I got distracted and I just started reading and I forgot. I said, let me ask you one more question. Was there ever a point during the time you're reading the book that this thought came through your mind? I probably should go do my bathroom routine. He said, yeah. I go, what did you do with that thought? He goes, I pushed it out of my mind. I said, buddy, that's what I want to talk to you about. You see, I unfortunately sometimes was raised, and some of you probably the same way with a parent that were more interested in not you kept the rules and obeyed. And the old me would have just said, you disobeyed us. But actually, I've been given a responsibility as a parent to teach my children about how to hear God and walk with God and get to their hearts. Not, it's not about the rules. 
And so I wasn't that worried about the disobeying as much as I wanted to teach him about hearing God. I said, that's what I want to talk to you about. You see, the Bible calls it the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He gives us a conscience and he works with that. And the Spirit of God will call you and he'll talk to you. The problem is, if you get good at pushing the Holy Spirit away when he speaks to you, you over time get so good at it, you develop what the Bible calls a hard heart. Folks, I'm going to say to you that are Christians that are listening right now, when the Spirit is speaking to you, listen. Do it. It's easy for us to sit here and say, yeah, all you unbelievers out there, you better respond while he calls you for salvation. Uh, I say to you, Christians as well, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you will lose that intimate relationship and he may take you home early and you'll miss out on an eternity of rewards. Don't harden your heart to the point that God says it's too late. Have you ever noticed through this passage that we just read in Matthew that the people that Jesus was being confronted by were far more concerned with what people thought than what God thought? Did you notice that? They were more worried about what the crowd thought. I love how in Jesus' answer to their question, he first gave them a question that showed them their hearts. Then when they said, we don't know, were they actually saying we don't know? What were they actually saying? We don't want to tell you. Because if we tell you what we know it is, because we know it's from God, John's message and John's authority was from God, if we admit that we know that, you'll just tell us, why didn't you believe it? But if we say what we know isn't true, but that it wasn't from God, we know the people around us are going to have a fit because they're all listening, and they all believed he came from God. And so their answer was, we don't know. But their real heart answer was, we don't want to say. And I love how Jesus answers their heart response by saying, then I won't tell you either. Did you catch that? When he says, I don't know, he doesn't say, I don't know where my authority comes from either. He says, you really don't want to tell me, and so I'm not going to tell you. By the way, had they been already given enough light and revelation to know where his authority came from? Of course they had. The sooner we acknowledge that God knows our thoughts and our true feelings about things, the better we'll be. I'm going to take you on a little journey through the scripture real quick to kind of illustrate this point. But I want to say it again. The sooner you acknowledge that God knows your heart, how you really feel. Oh, you could fool your spouse. You could fool me. You can fool anybody. You can't fool God. He knows your heart. He knew where they were coming from. He knew where their hearts were. Go with me real quick to Matthew chapter 9. We're in Matthew 21. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 7. In Matthew 9, starting in verse 1, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. That whole conversation happened because Jesus knew what they were thinking. Oh, before I go further, let me let you in on something that you kind of already know, but you might need to be reminded of. Um, most of your conversations with God... He's going to be steering it toward what? What you're saying or what you're thinking? By the way, if you don't know the answer to it, the answer is going to, he's going to be steering the conversation toward what you're thinking. You may say, God, I got this request. And he'll say, actually, it's deeper than that. And you know it's deeper than that. And let's go there. God, I got these fears. Yeah, but that's just the surface. There's a bigger issue and I want to go there. This will help you understand how to recognize God talking to you because he's going to go to where your heart is. That's where he's more concerned. Jump over to Matthew chapter 12. Look at verses 22 through 25. Matthew 22, sorry, 12, starting in verse 22. 
The demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees, Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. There it is again. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. We've already studied all of that, but again, it all started because he knew what they were really thinking. Go to Luke chapter 7. Look at verses 36 through 40. In this instance, Jesus is going to have a whole conversation with somebody just because of what they thought. Luke chapter 7, look at verses 36 through 40. In Luke 7, starting in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, he brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, sorry, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what, who, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Then Jesus tells this story about who's going to love him the most. But how did that whole conversation come about? Because Jesus knew what he was thinking. Now, I'm going to go there. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in the world right now, isn't there? And a lot of us might have been griping a little bit, complaining a little bit, pretending we're not racist, all these different things. Guess what? Guess where God wants to get? Guess where God wants to go? We're praying, Lord, fix America. And there's nothing wrong with praying for our nation. The Bible teaches us to pray for our leaders and pray for our country. But let me just give you a little heads up. The more you talk to God, and even if you don't, about what's going on, the more he's going to want to get to the deeper issue. He's going to work on your heart. Your prayer is going to be about all these people and all these things they're doing, and he's going to say, I'll deal with them, but I also want to deal with you. And so, folks, let me just give you a heads up. As you go through these turmoil times, God's not freaked out, and he's going to use it to get to your heart. By the way, has anybody ever noticed that he's designed in this world you will have trouble? Has anybody ever thought about why? Well, there's lots of reasons. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, that these trials have come to prove our faith genuine. There's an opportunity through the trials to bring glory to God by our faith in Him as well. But also, it's when we get hit that it brings out what's really in our buckets. He's using it to get to your heart. Hey, you, you're a Christian if you've trusted Him as your Savior. And here's child, that's a wonderful thing. But He's not done with you and me. And He's wanting to take you deeper. He's wanting to make you more into the image of Jesus Christ. And he's not going to go at your actions as much as he's going to go at your heart. Remember, I could have just dealt with AJ's actions. That wouldn't have really solved the problem. There was a deeper issue, a heart issue. How many of us, unfortunately, were raised by parents that were just more about what you did or didn't do and judgment and punishment? That's not good parenting. Good parenting gets to the heart. And you'll realize in good parenting, sometimes you'll need to bring the judgment. Sometimes you'll say, let's use this as a teaching opportunity and there'll be no consequence because you're training and you're teaching. Now, Jesus continues answering their thoughts and their secret motives in their hearts in our section that we just read in Matthew by telling the parable of the two sons. Did anybody ever catch that? Go back to Matthew chapter 21. He's just dealt with the fact that he knows what they're really thinking and he then tells this parable. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he tells the parable of the two sons. And pretty much, if we're going to summarize the parable, let me put it to you this way. Words mean nothing if they aren't followed by true actions. And true actions that are rewarded come only from the heart. You might do the right thing with the wrong heart attitude. Will you receive a reward? No, but I did it 
Lord, didn't I preach in your name and in your name cast out demons? That's good stuff. I never knew you. We didn't have any relationship. That was you doing it, not me. Folks, let me just say this to you in love. Words don't mean anything unless they're followed by actions. I'm going to show you that from the scripture. But on top of that, right actions don't mean anything unless they come from the heart. And God wants to get to our hearts. I just got a scripture that came to me from the Lord right now during this time that goes with where we're going. Put a bookmark on what we're talking about. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Would we not agree that in the turmoil of our day that it's obvious that we're getting close to the end and a judgment is coming on the world? Would we not agree with that? Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a meddler or a thief or an evildoer as a, or as a murderer or a thief or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him be, glorify God in that name for it is time. Here's the verse I want you to see. For judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We can look at the craziness in the world and we think, man, God's getting the world ready for judgment. I've been hearing that a lot. Boy, it's getting close to the end. You've ever been saying that yourself? Man, the judgment's coming on the world. What did the scripture say in 1 Peter 4, 17? In the midst of this, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. He's right now purifying his bride. He's working on his church. Oh, he'll take care of the world. That's going to be dealt with. The church is going to be raptured, and then he's going to finish what he started with Israel and judge the world and think of the people of Israel. But right now, if we're still here, he's working on us. So I say to you again, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the turmoil, stop looking at what God ought to do in this crazy world and say, Lord, show me my heart. Am I lining up with your heart, with your attitude, with your desire? Go to John chapter 2. I'm going to take you through some scriptures real quick that kind of illustrate this truth that words don't mean anything, but only actions that come from a true heart. Look at John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Isn't that interesting? If I had just read the first verse to you, and asked you if those people were saved, you'd say, yeah, they believed in his name. Yet the next verses say, no, they weren't, because Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew it wasn't real. Doesn't the parable of the soils tell us that there's some seed that falls on the rocky soil, springs up, sure looks like salvation, but trouble comes, mama dies, I didn't get the job I wanted, and they walk away from faith? Bob says some seed falls on the thorny soil and springs up, sure looks like salvation, fooled us. But then over time, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of money and wealth choke it and it proves unfruitful. Why? Because it really didn't have any root. The real root is foundation in Jesus Christ. And so, folks, let me just say to you, words don't mean anything. Only actions. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 8. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now keep yourself from trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. It's not for us to determine who's saved and who's not, or who's real and who's not. But let me ask you a question. What do you think Jesus is really thinking on Sunday morning when we're singing? All to Jesus I surrender. 
All to him I freely give. What do you think he's thinking? As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul longs after you. The words are coming out, aren't they? Is the heart with it? Again, I'm preaching to myself too. There have been a few times I've been in church singing that song and I've said, Lord, I want this to be true. I want to mean that, but I don't feel it sometimes. By the way, there's encouragement from the scriptures. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5 says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. In those times that I'm allowing him to speak to my heart, he doesn't beat me up. He doesn't chastise me. He just wants to show me my heart so he can make the change. But I have to ask him to make that change. We're not going to take the time to turn there, but if you were to go to James chapter 2 and look at verses 14 through 26 later on, James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26, James talks about real faith that's demonstrated by actions or works, some of your translations say. And James pretty much says, you say you got faith? Big deal. Show me your faith by your actions. Now, he's so blunt about it that actually the Bible uh, canon people that were trying to determine which scriptures were actually from God and which weren't almost didn't put the book of James in the Bible because they thought he was contradicting Paul, which says we're saved by grace and not by works. We're saved by faith alone and not by works. Yet James said, man says he got faith, he doesn't have works. You've got to be saved by faith and works. He wasn't disagreeing with Paul. What he was simply saying is, if your faith is real, there will be action. I shared this illustration with you years ago. You might have forgotten it. I was teaching at a youth conference in New Orleans, outside of New Orleans, at a church called Edgewater Baptist Church. And the youth pastor of that church had cerebral palsy. Can I borrow your chair real quick? And do you mind standing while I do this illustration? I appreciate that. I just went out of the camera shot here. Hey, look, there's a chair I could have grabbed right over there. But I appreciate your willingness here. Now you're in the way of Dave and Jill, though. But all right, let me get where the camera can see. There was a youth pastor there, and he had cerebral palsy. And he was sitting in a chair, and I'm about to do that in just a second. And what happens is I was teaching on real faith is demonstrated by actions. What you really believe will be followed by your actions. And before I went and did this conference, I had taken real big firecrackers, and I had taken them home, pulled all the fuses out of them, took a toothpick, and took all the gunpowder out of each one. Then I put the fuses back. In the middle of my lesson, a room full of youth, I held these firecrackers up. I said, does anybody know what these are? They were like, yeah, those are firecrackers, and those are good ones. I said, yeah, they are. Watch this. And I lit them all. I'm holding them in my hand, lit them all, and I threw them under all their chairs. The room just scattered. I mean, they disappeared. And one went directly under the chair of the youth pastor who had cerebral palsy. And he was sitting there doing this and he couldn't get up. And he was going, you did me wrong. You did me wrong. And of course, nothing happened. Thank you very much for the use of your chair. Nothing happened. I had to go out into the hallways and bring them all back in. And I sat him back down. I said, why did you guys run? They said, you threw firecrackers in the room. I go, yeah. You believed that there was gunpowder in them. And that caused you to act in a certain way. If you really believe something, you will follow it with actions. If you don't believe, you don't follow it with actions. And that's what James is teaching in James 2. But look at Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33 Verses 30 through 33. I think we've been out of Ezekiel long enough that some of you aren't going to shake anymore when I say turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at verses 30 through 33. Look closely at what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel chapter 33, starting in verse 30. As for you, son of man, God's talking to the prophet Ezekiel. As for you, son of man... Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, Come and hear what the word that, is, that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain, and behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and it will come, then they will know 
that a prophet has been among them. Isn't that interesting? Hey, Ezekiel, God says, let me give you a little heads up. Yeah, they show up. You got a good attendance in church and they love to hear you preach. And they even say, let's come hear the word of the Lord, but they ain't going to do it. They just like to hear you. Reminds me of a man when I was pastor in Chicago. I don't remember his name. I don't remember his wife's name. She was a strong, wonderful believer. And her husband was an unbeliever and made it very, very clear that he was an unbeliever. But he would not miss a Sunday. They would always sit together in the back and he would sit with her. And when the end of the message was over and I'd give the invitation to come respond to the gospel, when everybody stood to sing that song of invitation, he would always get up and walk out. He always came in a separate car. She would come for Sunday school and he'd stay for church. He'd come when it was time, but he wouldn't even come for the singing. He would show up just in time. He knew when the sermon was going to start and he'd listen to the sermon and then he'd walk out, right? It was time to respond to the gospel. He did it every week for years. And one day he went to the hospital and I went to visit him. And I said, I got to ask you a question. I know you don't believe a word I'm saying. He goes, I don't. I think it's poppycock. I go, why do you come every week? He goes, I don't believe a word you're saying. I just like how you say it. I enjoy listening to you. Be careful. God wants to get to our hearts. He's purifying his bride in these last days, folks. Let's go to Matthew 21. Verses 33 to the end of the chapter. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Jesus then said, Hear then another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug in a wine press in it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, here we see it again, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. We're going to end our study tonight with this section, but we're going to go at it in a different way. We read Luke's account of this last week. If you were with us last week, we read Luke's account of this. But this week, I want to look less at Israel's losing of the role of God's chosen fruit producer and look at who he has given the role to now. Look again at chapter 21, verses 41 through 43. They said to him, He will put out those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. We looked last week that the vineyard is who? A little louder, come on. Israel, very good. The vineyard is Israel. And they were supposed to produce fruit, but they produce wild fruit. He'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jump down to verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Jews, and given to a people producing its fruits. We looked last week at how God was going to judge Israel because of their disobedience, the rejection of the Messiah. They had been chosen by God to be his light bearer to the world, to the Gentiles, and they rejected that role, turned away from him, worshipped other gods, and because of that, even though he sent his son to them and the prophecies were fulfilled in their presence, the judgment was coming and the destruction of the temple and all that we looked at last week. Now, hopefully you know that this role has been given now to who? To the church. The role has been given to the church. Go to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, look at verse 16. Remember, we just read that he's going to give it to others who are going to produce his fruit. John chapter 15, look at verse 16. Jesus says, 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. But the reason I chose you was so that you would bear fruit. Jump up to chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Jesus says, I am the vine, the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Keep that in mind, because that's going to help you with a question at the end of the study. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. We saw last week in our study that God had chosen Israel to be the fruit producer, to reveal him to the world, but they didn't. He gave them lots of opportunities to respond. He even took them out of their land a couple of times, brought them back, said, try again. And ultimately, he turned them aside for a season. And right now, that role has been given to us. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So don't miss this. Paul's saying, look, you Gentiles haven't replaced Israel. It's a continuation of what God was doing. And he's bringing the true believers in Israel and the true believers of the Gentiles together into this building that he's making. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Folks, you need the Old Testament if you're going to understand the church. You need to know what the scriptures are said and know what they're saying because it's all connected. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. He's been the same God. He never changes. The same yesterday, today, and forever. But right now, the role is given mainly to us Gentiles who aren't Jews. There are some Jews still being saved, but for the most part, the Gentiles are being offered this salvation. But as you've heard me quote many times and hint at, there comes a point where the hardening of Israel in part is going to come to a close. He's going to gather all the number of Gentiles that have been saved and the Jews who are part of the church. Take us to be with him. Finish the prophecies that were given to Israel in the city of Jerusalem and then set up his kingdom on the earth. But right now, we in the church who are part of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus at the cornerstone. He's been the cornerstone from the beginning. We've been given the role to be what? Light. I love that you caught that. We're fruit producers, but we're fruit producers by being light. Go to John chapter 1. Actually, I apologize. Go to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 1 first, and then we'll, verse 4. 1 Peter 1 verse 4, then we'll go to John 1. Smitty, you don't realize how giddy I got inside when you, when, that means they're getting it. It means I'm not teaching it. He's doing it. Because if you got it, he get it. First. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 4.
actually chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Sorry, I, first, I wrote it down in my notes wrong, and I'm like, I know that's not the right place. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone. You're going to see how these verses are tied to what Jesus has been saying. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You even got it before we got to that passage. Into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now go to John chapter 1. We've been made into a Dwelling place for God by His Spirit. A holy temple. People to offer spiritual sacrifices. We've been brought from darkness into light. And we are supposed to produce fruit by demonstrating that light. Pointing people to that light. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We've been studying about him. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Isn't that interesting? There's only one God, but the God who's at the Father's side has revealed the one God. If you get it, God opened your eyes. If you don't get it, you're trying to figure it out with human understanding. There's one, one God, but He's always existed in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that Word wasn't just with God. He is God. And He took on flesh. He's the light of the world. He's the light of life. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verses 12 through 17. And I think we're going to make it. But i got to pick up a little speed. Can't say we'll pick it up next week, because next week's in two months. Matthew chapter 4, look at verses 12 through 17. Now when he heard, this is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Go to chapter 5, look at verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put light in a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and pat you on the back. No, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Go to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is after Jesus' resurrection. 
Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. He says, Jesus came, said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Folks, I'm going to give you some more scripture, but let me just kind of make sure you're still tracking with us. Jesus is the light. Our job is to show them the light. We're not the light. Remember, John was not the light. He came as a witness to the light. But Jesus said, you're the light of the world. He wasn't saying you're the light per se, but we are the light of the world because right now Jesus has gone back to the Father and he's doing his work in this world through what? The church and through us and through his body. And so we're his hands and his feet. And so we, as Christ lives his life through us, are demonstrating the light. We're showing them the light. We are the light in that sense, not because it's coming from us, but because it's coming from the one who lives within us. But I have to ask you a question. Are they seeing Jesus right now? Or are they seeing a church person? Are they seeing Jesus right now through you? Or are they seeing someone that's religious and trying to be like Christ? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I've said to many a church as I travel around the country, do you want to know why people don't come to your church? They say, why? I go, because they've been. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse um, 4. What is the description of the gospel? It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Where's your focus? In these days that God is working on his church, that Jesus is purifying his bride, judgment is happening now. We can look at how God wanted to get to the hearts of the Jews. That's what he was working with them. Now he's working on us. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. He'll deal with the world in time. Stop looking at the craziness in the world and talking about what's going on in the world and how bad everything in the world is going and look at how America's falling and look at all this stuff. As his children, as his bride, we should be realizing that we are close to the return of Jesus. And what's his focus as we get to the return of Jesus? Us. He says, I'll deal with them in time. I'm dealing with you right now. Remember how it says in the book of Revelation, the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready? Where's your focus? Are you producing fruit? Are you pointing people to Jesus? I'm not saying are people getting saved. I'm just asking, are you pointing them to Jesus? We've been given the responsibility of being his light bearers. It's not our job whether they believe or not. The Bible, Jesus himself even said, narrows the road that goes to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Wides the path that goes to destruction, and many go that way. Don't judge whether or not, well, I haven't had many people get saved around me. I'm not asking you that. Are you a light bearer? Is, is the world seeing Jesus through you? Don't try to get them to join a church. Point them to Jesus. Don't try to get them to join your political party. Point them to Jesus. Don't try to get them to be like you unless you are following Jesus and allowing him to live his life through you. So how do we do it then? How do we point people to Jesus? Does anybody know? How, the Bible does tell us, by the way, and I'm going to because you know if you're quiet long enough, I will. But how do we point them to Jesus? Definitely through the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer's good. That's tied to what we're going at. Reflect His light is great because that's kind of where we're going. But it's tied to reflecting His light. What well, you just said, Warren. Listen closely. 
You got it. She remembered. Remember the abiding? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will produce fruit. Sheila gets a gold star too. Smitty, you're still up there. You're still good. But, but uh, let's close. Let's close real quick. Look with me real quickly at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Folks, how do we do this? How do we shine the light? We look at Jesus ourselves. All you got to do is spend time with Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, but the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jump down now to verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Folks, take your bracelet off that says, what would Jesus do? And stop trying to be like Jesus. And spend your time with Jesus. Spend your time in prayer. Spend your time in the Word. And as you do, you are going to all of a sudden, because it's Him supernaturally doing it, look like Jesus as you hang. Have you ever noticed the people you hang out with the most are the people you start acting like? You hang out with Jesus, you're going to look like Jesus. Yes, ma'am, you have a question. You have a statement. Go right ahead. It reminds me of Moses coming down from the It's exactly that passage, the verses I skipped over are referring exactly. Lisa, it reminds her of Moses coming down from the mountain. Remember, and that's what Paul brought out in this section. Remember when Moses spent time in those 40 days? He just, in the presence of God, had a glow that freaked everybody out. Folks, the more you hang out with Jesus, the more you just look at him, the more you look, at, look like him without even trying. Too many of us are trying to be like Jesus. Stop it. Go spend time with Jesus. I promise you it'll take care of itself. In the book of Acts, you can turn there. We're, we're going to close, so I'm not going to have you turn there. But in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 5 through 13, and then 14 through 20. Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 13, and then 14 through 20. The disciples were being told to not preach anymore. And they said, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. And then the rest of that verse says that when they left the place, everybody's reaction was, these guys have been with Jesus. My prayer is in the two months that we're apart, when we come back together, there'll have been some people that maybe you don't hear it, but God does, who encounter you. And they'll say there's something different about that person, or maybe they might even say, that person's been with Jesus. I love you. Can't wait to be back together.